On this episode of No Truce Bard, I pay homage to Professor Ivan Van Sertema and his 1976 classic, They Came Before Columbus. I also discuss briefly Early America Revisited and how these books shifted the paradigm of the study of African history. Definitely check this episode out and thank you for listening. Take care and peace. Welcome back to episode 78 of No Truce Bard, the best up-and-coming podcast on the internet, and I'm your host, Hoika Waku Timmons, and I want to thank everybody who's contributed a piece of constructive criticism, who's clicked on a like button, left a comment, who's subscribed to the YouTube channel. And by the way, make sure you go to YouTube and subscribe to the No Truce Bard YouTube channel. Make sure you go to Instagram and follow me at the T-H-E underscore No Truce Bard podcast. 2021 has been a great year. I want to thank all of the guests who's come on my platform. This episode is episode 78. Episode 79 will be out next week. Episode 79 is the very last podcast of this particular year. And I'm looking to go into 2022 really strong. So without further ado, what do you think about cultures, civilizations coming to the Americas before Columbus? Furthermore, what do you think about Africans coming to the Americas before Columbus? What do you think about an Egyptian Phoenician influence on Olmec culture? What do you think about certain African deities and spears being found in the Americas prior to the coming of Columbus? Well, this is something that Professor Van Sertema asserted and argued in his 1976 classic, They Came Before Columbus. And what I want to do tonight, I want to talk about Professor, excuse me, Professor Van Sertema and his books, They Came Before Columbus and uh, Early America Revisited. I don't just want to regurgitate information that I came across in those books. I will touch on some information that I did come across in those books. But I want to talk about the profound impact that they had on me. I also want to talk about the impact that they had on academia. I also want to discuss the impact that it had on African studies and how Van Sertema's work really shifted the paradigm. And then some of my problems and some of the unintended consequences of Ivan Van Sertema's work as well. So Professor Van Sertema uh, was a Guyanese scholar. He came from British Guyana. He went to the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of, of London. And in 1970, Professor Van Sertema actually compiled a dictionary in Swahili. Um, when he immigrated to the United States, he was a graduate student at Rutgers University where he first began his work on They Came Before Columbus, and he will ultimately end up becoming a professor at Rutgers University as well. And he put together this great body of work, and he was influenced by a German scholar by the name of Alexander von Rothenau as well, because he was one of the, the first people to really study the impact of African cultures on Mesoamerica as well. And so he put together They Came Before Columbus. This is a book that has called, uh, caused a lot of controversy. It's a book that 
really it goes against mainstream ap- academia because mainstream academia is going to tell you that prior to Columbus, they may um, name the Viking guy. I think his name was Eric uh, Eric Leafman that came uh, over here, I think, in the, the, the 10 hundreds. Uh, if you will, or the the 1000s, the Vikings came to the New World. So they will accept that. But they will argue that there's really no evidence that any other cultures came to the Western Hemisphere. And you had others like Barry Fell, who wrote uh, America B.C., and another book as well, where he tried to argue for various other cultures coming out of Western Europe that would have came over here and left some sort of cultural imprint. And with Van Sertema, you know, his work, <laughs> to me, his work, it really, it really opened up my mind. You know, so I was 16 when I first came across Professor Van Sertema's work. They came before Columbus. Uh, and the way I came across his work, one of my teachers, I wasn't really cooperative in my in my 10th grade history class. So one of my teachers, he had me stay back for detention. And when we stayed back for detention, he would provide us information like, you know, we started talking about the Moors. And then he started to mention Professor Ivan Van Sertema. And when he talked about the fact that there were people, Black people, African people, that came to the Western Hemisphere before Columbus, it blew my mind. I never, I never could grasp that. It was something that was so alien to me. And although it was alien to me, it sparked a fervor in me. It sparked, a, it sparked an interest to learn more. So prior to that particular point, prior to that particular point, I never really went out and sought information. I never went out to purchase books. I never went out to really do any sort of self-study. Whatever I needed to read to pass a class, that would be it. If it didn't involve me passing a class or getting a good grade, then I didn't really feel it was of, of importance. This was really the first time in my life that I would go and seek information on my own. So I remember reading the book at, at, at about like 15 or 16. And when I read the book then, certain things stuck out, certain things hit me, but I didn't think I had a good historical context to fully appreciate the book. Because if you talk about the Phoenicians, I'm like, who is that? Like, who are they? You know, I, I had a general understanding of ancient Egypt or Kemet or Tamare or, you know, these various names people want to reference Egypt by. I had kind of a very rudimentary understanding. And so at 16, I could grasp certain things, but I didn't really have that, that true contextual understanding of what I was reading. And so it, it, it caused me to research other things as well. So when you look at They Came Before Columbus, what one of the things uh, Van Sertema argues, like I said, is for an African presence in the New World. But who was the original presence or what was or where did it come from? So as we all know, during 11,500 BC, there was an ice bridge that connected Russia to what is now modern-day Alaska. And gradually human beings... Um, as scientists would say from Siberia, started to matriculate into what would become the Americas. Now, one of the oldest cultures we found in North America is the Clovis culture. The Clovis culture dates to around about 11,000 uh, 11, BCE. 
So Clovis is a place in Clovis, New Mexico, where they found spearheads, pottery, other weapons uh, that indicate that there was a great settlement here. And these people would have been the descendants of those that would have came across that uh, the Bering Straits. They would have been those descendants. So a lot of times you get information about the Clovis culture. So the Clo Clovis culture and their tools, it hasn't just been found in New Mexico, but throughout other parts of the South as well. Um, and on the border of like northern Mexico, what we can now consider northern Mexico. So that's like one of the oldest cultures. Now, Van Sertelman didn't argue that those people were black. But when you look at it, historically speaking, mainstream uh, science would agree along with Afrocentric anthropology and science that the Clovis culture is one of the oldest cultures that you have here in America. But like I said, Van Sertelman, he really wasn't the first to propose that there was an African contact with the New World prior to Columbus. There were others as well, like I mentioned, Alexander Van Wathenu, Barry Fell, and even Shekanta Jop, the, the Senegalese scholar, he actually pointed out uh, in his book, Civilization of Barbarism, he actually did a brief study of that. And he talked about the fact that toba the tobacco plant, which grows over here in the Western Hemisphere natu naturally, although there are other parts of the world now that yield tobacco, were found with Egyptian mummies. So is, is, is it possible that the Egyptians came to the New World? Possibly. Uh, under King Necho II, he actually had a fleet of Egyptian and Phoenician sailors Circumnavigate, circum, circumnavigate the continent of Africa. So they left out of the, uh, the if, I think it's like out of the Isthmus of Suez, went down the Red Sea, around the Horn, circumvented, uh, go, went around the Cape, and came back up the west coast of Africa, through the Straits of Gibraltar, and back to Egypt. In total, that total voyage took about two years to complete. So it could be argued that if the Egyptians were able to do that, what's to stop them from going to the New World? There are currents that go down. It's a, a current called the Canary Current that if you get in that current, it'll easily end you up in Brazil. As a matter of fact, there are records talking about ships prior to Columbus ending up wrecked off of the, uh, off of the coast of Brazil. And this is not just Jermaine, the Africans it's easy to get caught up in that particular current. And I, and, and so, you know, I, I, for me, like I said, with this particular book, it just really, it really opened up a world for me. You know, um, it truly did. And it caused me to investigate other scholars. Like I said, I came across Barry Fell's work. Now, Barry Fell is a little bit different. Because Barry Fell, what he does in his work, which is uh, America BC, and then there's another work of his that I read, but I don't actually have. In Barry Fell's work, he talks about a Celtic influence. So in New England, they found uh, Ogam inscriptions. Now, these are Celt like a Celtic writing system, a Celtic script that you would have found in Ireland and parts of the, uh, the Iberian uh, Peninsula. 
he showed evidence of this OGAM G and that's OGAM script that would have been found in New England. And he goes into great detail about it. It's kind of akin, or it looks a lot like runic. If you look at it, it looks a lot like runic. And he talks about that. Uh, and runic is, a, is another writing system that you can find in Western Europe before the advent of, of Latin, excuse me, via the Romans. So he goes that route with it. And matter of fact, the, um, in South Carolina, there was these people called the Dahure or the Sahure. And they were natives that the Spanish had encountered in South Carolina. But the difference between them and the other neighbors is that they were a lot taller. Some of them have freckled skin, red hair, and were kind of a little bit more pale in complexion. And they also possessed this Ogam script as well. So it could be said that possibly could they have been a Celtic, a rogue or break off Celtic tribe that had ended up in South Carolina. And they spoke a language that was different from the natives that were around them as well. This is a relatively small group of people, but nonetheless, they did exist there. And so you get people like I said, Barry Fell, who uh, speaks about that as well. Um, I'm trying to think, because it's a lot of scholars. Matter of fact, you could go back and you could read some of J.A. Rogers' work. And he's someone I'm going to talk about a little bit later, Joel Augustus Rogers. And uh, in some of his work, he actually mentions that that uh, the, the travel of Africans across the Atlantic prior to Columbus. And also something not to forget is that people like Columbus, uh, Hernando Cortez, who conquered the Aztec Empire, and people like uh, Francisco Bizarro, who, who uh, conquered the Inca, they also had African or Moorish cartographers and navigators on those ships with them. And this is just kind of like a testament to the Moorish influence on science throughout Western Europe. So it wasn't just, uh, <laughs> it just wasn't a monolith of travelers. And that's kind of like another thing when you talk about history and more important, navigating the oceans is made to look at like a Western European thing only and the input and the guidance and the knowledge of Moors and Africans seem to be omitted from many of these books and these discussions and you actually have to go out on your own and get that sort of information. Van Sertima's book is a testament to why African studies are important. African-centered studies are important because they challenge the mainstream paradigm. They challenge this concept that African people didn't have a script. And it's funny because a lot of times when you talk to racists and they'll mention, you know, you'll mention uh, pre-colonial Africa, they'll say, well, they didn't have a script. If you look at the history of writing, a lot of writing is often oriented around the advent of trade and commerce. People really didn't invent scripts to uh, show off their intellectual prowess. It was more so about commerce. If you look at like a lot of these old scripts, you look at like Akkadian, a lot of that stuff is about commerce, keeping track of certain uh, goods and items, etc. But the reality is that for a long time in the ancient world, nobody really had a script. Nobody really had writing. 
not until the printing press did you really start to see an advent of a lot of literate people. For, ma for the majority of, of European history, most Europeans were illiterate. For the majority of African history, in many African societies, most of the people there weren't literate. It was a thing. Not everybody read. And furthermore, when, you, when people try to judge uh, the validity of African history off of having a script, well, look at it like this. The script that we use today is not runic. The script that we use today is not uh, Ogam. The script that we use today is Latin. Now, the script that, that Latin is based off of is the Phoenician alphabet. And once again, the Phoenicians were traders that circled the Mediterranean. Everything that we have, the A, the B, the C, the D, et cetera, the E, all of these letters come from the Phoenicians. That's why, you know, you say phonetics. And the Phoenicians, the purple people, they were called that because what they did was that they extracted what was called like a murex shell. And from this, they got a purple dye that they would dye a lot of their stuff in. And it was such a rare color that many times royalty would get that particular color or that shell from the Phoenicians um, for the nobility. So for a long time, nobody had a script. Nobody was uh, uh, writing. Even the Greek script, all of that, it's all built off of the Phoenician script. Now, once you start to get into Semitic languages, that's when things get a lot different. But even with that, I would argue that throughout the Middle East, over into East Asia, around the Levant, North Africa, Arabic served for a lingua franca, I think just in many ways as Greek would have served um, as a lingua franca in an earlier time period, especially around the time of Alexander the Great. Well, you may ask, like, why do you even want to talk about this? Like, why is this important to you? As I said earlier, African and Black studies, they are a tool. They are a tool to destroy this concept of racial inferiority and really to challenge the concept of race itself. Because it's not really any way that you can biologically stand on race being a real thing. You really can't prove that. We would like to prove that, you know, we have a certain hubris where we want to juxtapose cultures. We want to juxtapose phenotypes. And we want to look for any form, any modicum of superiority to look down on another race or another group. And I've always argued if we're going to study these cultures in antiquity and if we're going to look for a way to just juxtapose Greece or Rome and to do it from a perspective of looking down on Greece or Rome, we're basically doing the same counterproductive, caustic uh, uh, way of studying history as the same people that we're saying that we're fighting against. So I believe in using this history, this information for empowerment for a point of reference, for inspiration, but to also dispel the mythos that something innately great is, is, is in you because of your phenotype, because of your, pigment, your, of your pigmentation. That's not true at all. But many times we get wrapped up in history and we, and, and we want to use Egypt as the barometer for civilization. And I don't even like the word civilization. I like the word society. 
because I could argue certain things against this concept of civilization. But anyway, we, we take black history, we take African history, we take Van Sertima's work, we take Dr. Uh, Pro Professor Sikanta Job's work, and we use it in a nefarious, counterproductive, and idiotic manner. This is the way I look at history. The way I look at history is that this is a puzzle, and I'm trying to navigate it to understand what were the variables that produced the world that I currently live in. African history understood in its proper context should be used as a way to show that all human beings have the capacity, have the aptitude to create great feats, to create civilization. You look at one of the oldest astronomical observatories in the world is in Kenya, Namuratunga II is an astronomical observatory. You look at the Dogon, who knew about black holes, who knew about the Big Bang and the mythos, who talk about white dwarfs. You look at the Shabaka stone, which goes back to the 25th dynasty when the Pharaoh uh, or the Sultan Shabaka gathered this ancient text of the creation of the universe. And it went back to about 2,500 years before him. And so when you get into the 25th dynasty, you're looking at like about, uh, about around between 750 BCE through like about 600 or so BCE. It's in that period, the 25th dynasty, which a lot of uh, historians call the black dynasty, right? Cause they actually uh, Kushite rulers Overthrew, overtook Egypt, but they reinstall a lot of these ancient customs to justify or bring validity to their rule over ancient Egypt during the 25th dynasty. But you see things like the Shabaka stone. These things shouldn't be used for us to try to put down other people or just to say, hey, you guys have Rome and Greece. Well, we have Egypt. Who cares? See, the, the we fixed this problem of race by destroying the concept of it. And it's not to say you can't be proud of your culture, but the fact that we want to venerate phenotype as superiority or being uh, synonymous with superiority, whatever that may mean, is counterproductive in itself. We should praise the pooling of ideas. We should praise people coming together exchanging language, exchanging sciences. And so I want to take this time, I, I, like I said, I want to really give a shout out to Professor Ivan Van Sertima, but I want to talk about others as well. You have people like I mentioned about Joel Augustus Rogers, who was one of the most prolific historians at the turn of the 20th century. So he wrote books like uh, 100 Amazing Facts About the Negro. He wrote books like The World's Great Men of Color, Volumes 1 and 2. He wrote the three-volume three series, Sex and Race. And through his work, he dispelled a lot of the myths. Through his work, he brought our attention to the Candaces or the Kentakes of Meroway, the Kushite Queens, he brought our attention to the Moorish impact in Spain as well. 
we look at W.E.B. Du Bois or W.E.B. Du Bois as being one of the first American sociologists, great scholar. When uh, Professor Du Bois was in Berlin, he taught both Latin and Greek. Uh, I remember when I read about Professor uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and when he graduated from Harvard, he said, I assure you that the pleasure was all theirs. <laughs> They were honored to have him. He was a brilliant mind. But he also wrote a book called The World in Africa, where it's a great work on various societies in African history. And he's another person that we have to we have to talk about. Dr. John Henry Clark, as I mentioned earlier. He's another one. Arthur Schoenberg. I was talking about John Henry Clark. Arthur Schoenberg, who the Schoenberg Center is named after in Harlem, New York, he was the one that directly influenced and taught Dr. Uh, excuse me, Dr. John Henry Clark. So these are all people that were pioneers in the study of African history. These are people who would go on to write works that would shape the minds of activists, you know, people like Malcolm X were familiar with this work. Dr. Martin Luther King. And this work would impact someone like me. African, the study of African history, history is insanely important for black people and for me specifically, like I was talking about earlier, when I started to read this work, when I was in high school, in 10th grade, this is when I started to read this sort of work. In 10th grade, initially that first semester, my grades were in the gutter. I think I may have had like a 1.8 GPA. My, grade, my grades were crap. They were in the gutter. I had like a 1.8 GPA. But seeing people that look like me in the sciences, seeing people like Imhotep, the architect, the visor, the scholar, the father of medicine, someone who influenced Hippocrates, seeing this inspired me to want to expand and augment my intellect. Seeing this showed me that as black people, we have a seat at the table when it comes to science. Truly learning about Benjamin Banneker, truly learning about George Washington Carver and his reach and influence. The fact that he actually designed a dietary plan for Mahatma Gandhi. Learning the real history and the real contributions of people like Madam C.J. Walker. Learning about. Henry Sylvester Williams, who started one of the first Pan-African Congresses. African history inspired me to want to be a better intellect, a better man, and a better human being. And non-Black people should study African history as well. Because if we're ever to break this nefarious idea of race, we're going to have to have an open understanding of one another. And I think the study of African history, the study of black history, African-American history is one of the best and most pivotal ways to do that.
in my honest opinion. It changed my life. You know, it really did. It, it changed my life. And I, re- I will say this. If I never came across Professor Van Sertima's work, if I never came across They Came Before Columbus, I probably wouldn't have went to college. I probably would have kept making bad grades. And who knows, I probably would have dropped out of high school. I don't know why the universe sent that particular book into my life or why I was in that teacher's class. But if I could, unfortunately, uh, Professor Van Sertum, I think he passed about 12 or 13 years ago. But I always wanted to meet that brother because I wanted to tell him the sort of impact that that book had on my life. So let me ask you, who were the Olmecs? Why are the Olmecs important? Hey, was the slave trade fabricated and black people are already here and the slave trade is lying? We can't find any ships. Is all that true? I'm going to get into that. (laughs) No, the Olmecs were not black. They weren't black people. They weren't African people. They were indigenous, native, Mesoamerican people. And if you've read They Came Before Columbus, he never argued that they were black. <laughs> he didn't. But people really took a lot of Van Sertima's work and they really ran with it. I'm going to get into that a little bit later. But when you study the Olmecs, they had a rich system of architecture. They had a rich system of learning, of astronomy. They had a rich system of uh, games that they had you know, that were really unique to that particular culture. The Mes, excuse me, the Olmec culture is around from about 1200 BCE all the way up to about me, about 400 BCE. And like I said earlier, prior to uh, uh, Ivan Van Sertima, Alexander Van Wathenu, he was actually uh, doing a lot of work on the Olmecs. He was looking at that particular culture. And he actually wrote a book called Terracotta Pottery in Pre-Columbian South and Central America. So in that book, what Van Waffenu does is that he focuses on the African influence on Olmec pottery, Olmec art, um, and Olmec structures. And if you can find that book, I don't think it's in print anymore, but if you can definitely get a hold of that book and then go ahead and give it to me because I want it. (laughs) But he does it in his book. And he was a person that was a predecessor of Ivan Van Sertima in this particular area. So you have areas in the heartland of uh, in the Olmec heartland, like uh, Tres Zapotles, um, Zapotes, excuse me, Tres Zapotes. You have La Venta. These places where they have these colossal stone heads, which were used in religious ceremonies, and they had extremely robust Negroid features. Now, where did these people see these features to make those heads? Now, some people said that you can find those phenotypes amongst the Olmec, or even now in that part of of, of, uh, Central America. You can actually find it now, but I don't think that's the case. And a lot of evidence and they came before Columbus and early America revisited states otherwise. They also in their in their history talk about 
black travelers coming from the east. Prior to, way, way prior to Columbus, the Olmec, the Maya, they mentioned this. So let's, pardon me, I had something got, something got into my eye. <laughs> but they mentioned this. But let's talk about something a little bit more recent when you're talking about African people going to Mesoamerica. So one of my favorite empires to study is the Malian Empire. The Mali Empire at its height had a population of 50 million people. They had a mail service, a postal service. They had one of the greatest universities in the medieval world with the University of San Correy that at its height had a, a student population of over 25,000 people. You had great scholars like Ahmad Baba that came out of uh, Mali. They had books on dental hygiene, how to remove cataracts, medicinal knowledge of over 500 different plants, thousands of books where Arabic was used kind of as ajami. And what that means is that Arabic was used to write the tongues of these different languages. So you might come across a book in Mali that's in Arabic, but it's writing Wolof or it's writing Surer or it's writing Medinka. And so it was just an epicenter, a hub of learning outside of the other Islamic centers like uh, the, ba the, the Baghdad Caliphate. It was a huge learning center in the medieval world. So you can get me talking about Mali for days. You know, a lot of people want to talk about Mansa Musa, which is cool. But Mali is beautiful. Matter of fact, go and read Ibn Battuta's work. Ibn Battuta was uh, a Moroccan traveler. He was illiterate himself, once again, but getting back to the illiterate thing. But anyway, even Batuta actually went to Walata. And it's funny, if you read his writings, he was a Muslim. But what the Africans did, what the people of Mali did, is that though a lot of them were Muslim, they kind of had their own take on Islam. And it's funny, when Ibn Batuta went to Mali, one of the things he noticed was that these women were professed to be Muslims, right? Take Shahada, but they would walk around with their breast out. They weren't shy of nudity. He was confused by that. And the, actually, the, the, the people of Mali that he encountered thought he was the weird one for reacting to nudity that way. He didn't understand why when people would come before the monster, they would throw themselves to the ground, elbows first, and throw dirt on their head as a, out of a sign of disrespect. The crazy part is you have people that even, that never saw the monster's face. They never looked him in the face, almost like he was the sun. This is why I like the Malian Empire. But I'm mentioning the Malian Empire because when Mansa Musa went on his famous Hajj to Egypt, one of the things that Mansa Musa was mentioning, how he came to power. The beautiful part about how he came to power is something that I first encountered in Ivan Van Sertima's book. Abu Bakari II wanted to sail across the Atlantic. This king of this wealthy, robust, powerful empire wanted to sail across the Atlantic and see what was the limits of its shores. And this is how his throne was abdicated and Mansa Musa came to power. 
Some of the local historians frown on what Abu Bakari II did because they saw it as shameful that he abdicated the throne in such a vacuous pursuit, if you will. Beautiful. I loved it. So did this really happen? So as we learned, Van Sermon talks about this in Early America Revisited. He talks about this and they came before Columbus. There were actually two fleets. The first fleet was a fleet of over 100 ships that Abu Bakari II ordered sent out to see what happened. One ship made it back and he informed Abu Bakari II that the other ships, they met a great current. The, a lot of them went under and he turned around. His ship was the one that turned around and they made it back, fortunately, to Mali. So with that being said, this time he ordered, I believe, either 1,000 or 2,000 ships. And he had, I think, at least 50 ships on his own with his personal possessions, his servants, etc. And he went across the Atlantic and they never returned. Now, funny enough, there's actually a place in Brazil. It's a statue. And I apologize, guys. I meant to Google this and, and write it down. And I had it. Uh, I had it somewhere where they actually talk about West people from West Africa or Africa really coming and landing off of the coast of Brazil. And it's some statue. It's some statue that I believe that has some sort of like possibly uh, Meneka uh, writing or Arabic on it. Yeah. And in early America, an early America revisited. He built on a lot of the points that he built on and they came before, before Columbus. So what I like is linguistics, right? I'm not a linguist by profession. I'm not trained in it at all, but I do like linguistics because when you see a word or a certain syntax structure in this part of the world, then you see it thousands of miles away in another part of the world, especially in an age where there's not a global community like it is now. When you see that, you have to say this is not just coincidence. It is an anomaly on a, on a superficial level, but this is not a coincidence. Something happened where this group of people were able to contact this group of people over here and make contact. Yeah. So one of the things he talks about, and I have a few words here that I did take down. I'm, I'm a lousy note taker, but certain, <laughs> certain things. But when Columbus came uh, to Hispan what would become Hispaniola uh, amongst the Arawak people, Certain words for gold were also identical to certain Mendinka words for gold as well. So the spear, there were spears that they encountered as well that had, uh, what was it, like 11 parts gold, copper, and a few other substances that are identical to spears that you would find in West Africa. Certain words that would have been used for gold, like Ghanin, um in, in, in the Caribbean, is uh, uh, akin to the Guanihani amongst the Medinka or the Guanine, right? These are things that you see there. Actually, in the 
80s, two skeletons were found in St. Hall Bay and St. Thomas of two African men that go back to about 1250 A.D. When I read this as a 16-year-old, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. Like, reading stuff like this as a teenager, it just makes you like, wow. Like, how, like, it's so mind-boggling. But once again, uh, Van Sertiman, one of the things about Early America Revisited, because I was going to focus on Early America Revisited, but the format of that, of that book really, he kind of re covers the same ground and they came before Columbus, but more so he does a lot of rebuttals because a lot of scholars came out to try to discredit Van Sertiman's work. And he actually took that book and made a lot of great arguments against some of the, the critiques that were made against him. So if you get a chance, definitely order and check out Early America Revisited. But what is something else that really stuck out to me is the Egyptian influence. Yeah, the Egyptian influence. Uh-huh. Yes, I said it. The Egyptian influence. <laughs> but Barry Fell mentioned the fact that in certain caves in the Grand Canyon, they found inscriptions referring to Osiris, uh, Aset, or Isis, Ptah. He talks about this, not in America, B.C., but uh, another book of his. Some scholars have came forth, you know, decades ago and discredited some of those accusations. But one of the things that is hard to discredit is that you do find some slight references to pyramid building, mound building around a certain period. So like I was talking about earlier, the 25th dynasty that occurred, like I said, around, I'm, I'm not the best with dates, but around like about 735 BCE through about 600 BCE, somewhere in that time frame, maybe a little bit earlier, a few decades, give or take. But what also happened during this period is that you have powerful kings or pharaohs that come forth, such as Taharqa. And these people expanded Egyptian reach all the way into the Levant and made the, the Phoenicians uh, subjects of theirs, vassals, if you will. And you see evidence, once again, we're talking about the Phoenicians and sea navigating of Egyptian, of Egyptian and Phoenician sailors going throughout the Mediterranean, and exiting the Straits of Gibraltar. Zachariah Section, in his book, he wrote a book called The Twelfth Planet. If you never read it, essentially what The Twelfth Planet is about, The Twelfth Planet is uh, about a rogue planet, Nibiru, that makes a 3,600-year orbit around our, I guess, our sun. And this planet, when it comes close to Earth, these, be these beings, they come down, and they're called, he said that the Sumerians, which is allegedly, the, according to him, was the culture that wrote about it. But according to him, the Anunnaki came down from Nibiru 
they wanted they wanted to get gold for that atmosphere. They had these uh, underclass they sent out to mine gold, I think in places like South Africa. They rebelled. And so they had to find an early hominid here. They spliced their DNA with this, this early hominid, created humans, wanted humans to mine the gold. The humans looked at these uh, beings or these extraterrestrials as gods and according to him, that some of these beings are the template of what you see deities and other religions built off of. And so anyway, that's kind of like the 12th planet in a nutshell. But one of the things he talked about in the 12th planet, he was speaking about these Mesoamerican cultures. And he was talking about the Phoenicians coming there to like, you know, amongst the, uh, the, the Olmecs. And this was something funny. Now, this is a guy. Uh, Zacharias section, he's putting this weird theory out there, and he was talking about the Olmec heads, and he said, well, if the Olmecs, if the Olmecs wanted to make heads of of Africans, that wouldn't, he, he was saying, well, that could be possible because the Phoenicians brought the Africans over here with them as slaves, which would have been something that wouldn't have existed. But this is the idea that he put out, he puts out there. So Van Sertima goes into great detail and they came before Columbus and early America revisited about an Egyptian influence during the 25th dynasty on, uh, on the Olmecs. And possibly this is when we start to see the construction of these colossal uh, heads with these Negroid features. Blew my mind. Right. And this is why I say I, I love this book and I owe so much to it because it, it opened my world up in a way. Opened my world up in a way that changed my life forever. And I cannot I can't thank Professor Van Sertima enough. One last thing I want to touch on and I have a beef kind of with this book, kind of not with the book, but more so with the people that are sycophants of this book. He talks about the Pirate Reese map in this book and so many other books. Like we read Fingerprints of, Fingerprints of the Gods. If you read, um, what else? Uh, 12th Planet. Many other books talk about the Pirate Reese map. It was a map that was constructed in 1513 by a Turkish admiral by the name of uh, Pirate Reese. And I know I'm butchering that name. But essentially this map, he said he stated that he constructed this map off of four uh, Ptolemaic maps Ptolemaic is basically the Ptolemaic dynasty. This would have been one of the last dynasties in the twilight of ancient Egypt. And under the Ptolemaic dynasty, that's when Ptolemy Philadelphus II commissioned Manetho to actually set up the chronology and break up ancient Egypt into different dynasties. And also back to the 25th dynasty, that occurred during the third intermediate period in ancient Egypt as well. Um, but nonetheless, what makes this old? Uh, four Ptolemaic maps, one Arab map, and I think I think there was a map done by Columbus as well that he used. But the the crazy thing about this map is that it actually shows the exact location of Antarctica, although technically we didn't discover Antarctica until eighteen eighteen. So then you start to get into the fact of, well, 
prior to the last ice age, what was going on in Antarctica? You know, do we, we start to get into the discussion of Atlantis? So that's something that's really cool. You know, check that out. Do your own research on that as well. Um, but I want to speak to this before I wrap up this episode. I'll be remiss if I don't speak to this. I attribute they came before Columbus, early America revisited. Also, let me name uh, all of Van Sertima's books. Um, this is early America revisited right here. So check this out. Where's my copy of they came before Columbus? It's somewhere in here. Anyway. So uh, before I go into my, my last tangent, before I wrap this episode up, go and check out They Came Before Columbus, Early America Revisited, Egypt and Africa, great book. Egypt and Africa Revisited, African Presence in, in, in Europe is another one. I don't think you can find that one. I think that might be out of print. Black Women in Antiquity, Blacks in Science, I have that book. I love it. And... I think Van Sertima also did a book that was a biography slash compilation of interviews with uh, Shikanta Jop. So check out that book as well. So he has some, oh, um, and, and the book he edited with uh, Renoko Rashidi, uh, Bless Be, you know, Peace Be Upon, the, the late elder Renoko Rashidi as well. He did a book with him called The African Presence in Asia. Check that one out. Some of these books are like really hard to find, so they may be out of print. If you can find them, please purchase them. Uh, also, I'll be starting a book club later on in 2022. If you watch this video, let me know if that's something you'll be down with. But anyway, um, yeah, so Van Sertima influenced a host of people. People like me. Others, and then another group of people. There's recently been this thing of saying that uh, the slave trade didn't exist, that we're not Africans, and that we're indigenous. So I want to say this. Whenever you meet black people or African people or people of African descent that want to identify themselves as Native Americans, that want to call themselves indigenous, these are people that have a copious amount of self-hate. These are people that are ignorant of history. These are people that hate themselves so much, that hate our history so much that they would rather steal the history of indigenous people instead of embracing the rich culture of what black people contributed to this country through slavery. And see, because we have this aversion towards studying slavery, we don't realize what we've contributed to this culture linguistically, architecturally, religion-wise, uh, uh, as far as cuisine goes, as far as, as, as slang, music, etc., we don't realize the rich ways in which we retain African culture in our religion, in our song, in the way that we talk to each other, the way that we do our hair, how we retain that. And cultures like the Geechee and the Gullah, the Geechee and the Gullah, excuse me, are indicative of that. But when you claim to be indigenous and you claim that you have no connection with Africa, you hate yourself and you're trying to encourage other people to hate themselves too. And the biggest tragedy about that, when you say that there's there were no slave ships 
You spit on the people that went through the Middle Passage and died in the Middle Passage. You spit on the pain that millions of African people went through. And then you spit on the myriad of richness of culture that we had uh, prior to Columbus, prior to the advent of the transatlantic slave trade. And what people did, they took the work of Ivan Van Sertima. They took the work of Renoka Rashidi and they mixed it up. They and, and they even referenced people like this other guy, David Imhotep, and they mixed it up to try to come up with this pseudo history that's not real. Linguistically, you can't prove it. Genetically, you can't prove it. Black people come from a Niger Congo haplogroup. There is no one, uh, one monolithic phenotype across Africa. There are so many different cultures. So many different, you know, from the Wolof to the Sierra to the Mende to the to the uh, uh, the Yoruba to the Igbo. So many that I can name, and they're all so different, radically different. And this indigenous thing is dangerous, um, and is leading us, historically speaking, and studying culture in the wrong direction. So I always, anytime I, I see people that get on YouTube and they take Van Sertima's work out of context and they use it to justify this pseudo information, I'm against it because that's never what Professor Van Sertima said. I'm against it because that's never what Renoka Rashidi said. But people have gathered all of this work to try to take black Americans away from an African source. And to steal the identity and the culture of another people because you hate your history that much. So listen, this has been episode 78 of No Truths Barred. Make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you're following me on Instagram. And next week I'll be back with episode 79. That's going to be the last episode of the year. And then I'll be back in 2022. Once again, thank you guys for following me. Thank you for tuning in. Much love, much respect. Namaste. Take care and peace. You have just listened to episode 78 of No Truths Barred. And this episode can be found on YouTube, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is the No Truths Barred Podcast. Thank you for listening. Take care. And until next time, peace.